I was thinking about I, I did not watch that movie, whatever the fuck you just said. 1981's Dragon. I'm something Dragon. <laughs> Boating Down with Vermithrax. Tonight on Treble. Hey, everybody. It's Talk About Stuff on Purpose, baby. Chat lips. All right, ladies and monkeys. What's, uh, what's happening? It's the Stripes Treble. Fuck. It's time, children of the night. Listeners and ghouls, welcome. Welcome to Trapo. Oh, yeah, right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not Kai. I'm not Dustin. On tonight's, or today's, very special episode of Trapo, the show that talks about stuff on purpose. I don't know why I paused there. I felt like maybe I needed to pause, like it was a portentous thing, but no, I was just stupid. But that's <laughs> what the show is. We're trying to talk about stuff on purpose, and usually we don't, because we just spend an hour just rambling incoherently about God knows what. I don't even remember. You'll never hear it. And you don't want to. But on tonight's very special episode, uh, we're going to take you back, dear listener, back to a time that never was a time of magic and wonder and wizards and dragons and other tiny dragons and guys with lances that try to kill dragons. He's not Gandalf. It's not Gandalf. He was, it was, he was inspired by Gandalf. No, it's a show. It's a movie from 1931. Dragon Slayer, directed by uh, Matthew Robbins. He's the guy who's directed stuff. He's written stuff, co-written by his friend and producer, Hal Barwood. I like the name Hal Barwood. It's a good name. Barwood. Barwood. I don't even know where to start. This is a weird era. Back in those days, in terms of cinema, what was called the American New Wave filmmaking. The American New Wave was ending. It was cresting and rolling back at this time. A new wave, the blockbuster era, was rising. This is one of those movies that was caught in that uh, push and pull. And also, it was a co-production from Disney and Paramount. It was the second co-production from Disney and Paramount. You know what the first one was? What? Popeye, the Robert Altman film starring uh, Robin Williams. It's perfect casting, really. Popeye is a very interesting movie. And Disney had the international rights. Paramount got to release it in America because Paramount was kind of calling the shots on this one. They got away with a little more than they would have if Disney were actually uh, more heavily involved. I mean, there is, there is nudity in the movie. A little nudity on the part of Caitlin Clark, but you see basically everything Peter McNichols got to offer that in that pond. That does have the distinction of being the only time you ever see a dick in a Disney movie. Unless you count Bob Hoskins and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Because <laughs> he was a private dick. It was a joke. I made a joke. I'm very sorry. That was a terrible joke. But Dragon Slayer is an interesting movie. This took place during that weird era. Because this was the late 70s and early 80s. This was pre-Michael Eisner. And this is before the Disney Renaissance when they really came back strong with like Aladdin and Little Mermaid. They blew up again in the late 80s and early 90s. But before that, they kind of lost their way. But this is that time when you got a whole bunch of weird stuff from them. You got like the Black Cauldron, you got Tron, you got the Black Hole. Plus, you got Return to Oz. You got all sorts of weird, interesting, kind of dark and introspective stuff from them. And so this was that only time when Disney would have uh, actually put money and resources behind a, a film like Dragon Slayer. I guess technically you could you could see them making a movie like that now. If they'd seen that same script now, they would have heavily rewritten it. They would have ordered a whole bunch of changes to that movie because they want it to be safe. They want to sand down all those rough edges to try to make it as palatable to a mass audience as possible. But in 81, they're like, ah. I don't care. Whatever. Paramount's, they're shouldering most of the burden here, so, you know, fuck it. They'll probably make money, right? I mean, it's got dragons in it. Didn't Beastmaster come out about this time? The 1980s were just rife with bizarre fantasy films, and I think I watched, like, every single one of them. Yeah. 81 alone. 
We had Dara, the original Clash of the Titans, and we had Excalibur, the John Borman film, oh, yeah. along with Dragon Slayer, Dark Crystal Labyrinth from Jim Henson. Those are big. We had Masters of the Universe, like in 87. That one was always fishy because technically, because if you think of Masters of the Universe, it's sword and sorcery stuff, but they spent most of the movie like on Earth. Plus, the movie was just uh, cheap as hell. And then we had what? They had the Sword and Sorcerer, Legend, the Ridley Scott movie. That was that was like 85, I think. I think we had four Deathstalker movies, Flesh and Blood, Paul Verhoeven. Crawl, Crawl was a big one. Hawk the Slayer, two Barbarian Queen movies, Conan the Barbarian. Conan, yeah. Conan the Destroyer, we had the sequel. We had Red Sonja. Arnold basically plays Conan, but due to rights issues, they couldn't call him that, so they made up the name Kalidor. But it's Conan. It was literally written in the script. If you'd read the original script, his name was Conan. Willow, obviously. That came out in like 88 or something, right? I mean, when we were growing up, when we were in that kind of sweet spot right there, basically the only options, theatrical options, we had were probably Masters of the Universe and Willow. That was it. Everything else had already come out and was on VHS or on TV. We had to we had to settle yeah. for the scraps. At least you guys had HBO so you could record some of this shit when it eventually did come on. Literally back then it was years before it got to fucking basic cable sometimes, especially if it was a big hit, make a big fucking deal about it when they brought it back for TV. This is that time also when I was renting movies from the video store. If I found a, a box that had a guy with a sword or a wizard or, or something like lady. that, usually they're painted. I, I saw something like that. Uh-huh. And I, I would rent it. I always told you, and this is true, the only movie she never would let me rent was Frankenhooker. And that's true. I could rent all sorts yeah. of shit. And I was like seven, eight years old, renting all these fantasy movies. Most of them were R-rated. Gratuitous nudity and very, I don't want to say tasteful violence, because it, it was never tasteful. They were cranked out by smaller studios that didn't have a lot of money. So they were like, gotta put titties and blood in here. We can't afford a, a whole bunch of monsters. So we got we got some cheap Halloween masks and boobies. So uh, that's what they had to offer. We gotta make this thing sell. And we have a a sexy lady who's going to be here for one week. We got to get it done. There seemed to be an endless supply for a brief period of time. I could go to the video store. There's another one. I didn't see that one before. And one day I was looking around and thinking, wait a minute, I've seen all these. There's nothing else. I found uh, Fire and Ice, the Ralph Bakshi movie that got me into earlier stuff. I watched this Lord of the Rings adaptation. I watched uh, Wizards. So I would, I would find stuff that was interesting. I found a Lucio Fulci movie called Conquest, which was really cool. It kind of took a lot of the tropes of traditional fantasy and turned it on its head which i really appreciated at that time plus the actual antagonist of the movie is a very very attractive naked woman who's only wearing like a a golden helmet that's the villain i love it though conquest is nuts fuck is this i couldn't believe it like 10 years old watching this i shouldn't have been watching that 10 years old and i don't regret it for a second but yeah that was the the, that was the era high fantasy in film i used to say they don't make movies like that no more do you see fantasy movies with any kind of prominence anymore i mean really every now and then you'll get something. I mean, like, we just recently yeah. released the, the this new Dungeons & Dragons movie. I mean, shit, I'll bet if you go to Tubi, you could probably find a bunch of garbage, but we don't get we don't get this stuff, which I think is kind of sad. It's just the way it is, man. You know, actually, people like, they seem to like the Dungeons & Dragons. So I can't complain. I, I, it might be good. Anyways. Yeah, so... Uh, back to dragons. You know what a spec script is, Kai? No, I don't. That means the people who wrote it, they just wrote it. They weren't commissioned to write a screenplay for a studio. They hadn't pre-sold it. Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, who were very close friends and collaborators, they got deep into Tolkien, and uh, they loved Fantasia, very inspired by the Sorcerer's Apprentice story. And they thought, hey, why don't we write a goddamn script about, like, 
a guy slays a dragon. They researched the tale of St. George and the dragon, and they thought there was something there, so they just kind of took all these weird elements, made up a whole bunch of other stuff, and just jammed it into a screenplay, and eventually, bizarrely, they got somebody to give them money for it. I told you about the American New Wave, born in the 60s and 70s when the old Hollywood studio system collapsed. The New Wave was basically more filmmaker-driven. That's how you get really interesting movies. That's how Martin Scorsese rose up. That's how you got Five Easy Pieces. That's how you got One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Easy Rider, The Fucking French Connection. An endless sea of interesting cinema rose up out of this. That's how you get people like George Lucas. A lot of people look at George Lucas and they just think of Star Wars and they think it's not even a franchise it's a brand. That's not how it started. George Lucas wasn't a guy who was going to make mainstream films. No, he was making space fantasy. No, I'm talking about he started, he was an experimental filmmaker. Oh. He was making weird shit. Yeah. He was a USC graduate. Well, so was Matthew Robbins. He attended USC, the USC film school. But before he attended USC, I believe he attended John Hopkins University. He attended school with Walter Murch, who was a very influential and legendary film editor, sound editor, sound designer, and director. He directed Return to Oz. He's a legend in his own right. They attended school together. They convinced Johns Hopkins to send them to Paris for either a semester or a year to study at the Sorbonne. Because this was like... 63, 64, right in the middle of the French New Wave cinema. And they spent most of their time watching movies in Paris. They were so heavily inspired by what they were seeing over there. After that, they were both so taken with cinema, they decided to go to USC. And that's how they both met George Lucas. And that's how they both found their way into the actual art of filmmaking. He also met Hal Barbiter at the same time. Matthew Robbins wrote the original story for George Lucas that became THX 1138. And Hal Barwood worked as an animator for the film. And uh, they both became very close collaborators with Lucas later on and with Steven Spielberg. They did uncredited rewrites for Jaws and for Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Barwood and Robbins wrote the screenplay for Spielberg's first feature film, The Sugarland Express. And so they were both friends with Spielberg and Lucas. That's how they got to know the people who worked at ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, a company formed by George Lucas to basically make the special effects for his Star Wars films. When they sold Dragon Slayer to be a Paramount and Disney co-production, they convinced George Lucas to allow Industrial Light and Magic to do the special effects for their film. And this is the first time ILM worked on a special effects for a film outside of Lucasfilm. This is the first time they ever did it was for Dragon Slayer, which is a big deal because now that's all they fucking do. But this was how it began. When these guys were making Dragon Slayer, because they were the ones that had to create Vermithrax Pejorative, the actual dragon, and they had to make him look as good as possible. And if he didn't work, the movie didn't work. Nothing else would, would have mattered. I believe the character designer was named David Bennett. David Bennett. A graphic artist and illustrator. He gets credit for creating the look of the dragon, but Phil Tippett had to make that design work in three dimensions. The physical dragon, the miniature, and for the, the go motion technique, because there are parts where you'll wear Vermithrax, you only see him from the neck up. Most of that is actually a puppet. And that puppet is puppeteered by Chris Wayless, most known for his work in Gremlins. He's the guy who made the Gremlins. The moment when you see, uh, when Vermithrax investigates their dead, I don't know what to say, like, their dead babies. It's a really sad moment, but you're like, when mm -hmm. Vermithrax is actually leaning down and then nudges the dragon and looks sad, that's Chris Wayless on a hand puppet. I know it's a spoiler. But, you know, if look, basically, if you haven't seen Dragon Slayer and you're listening to this, you probably don't care. 
Yeah. Because you're not going to see it anyway. But I guess spoiler alert. There's spoilers coming. They did a whole bunch of different people and a whole bunch of departments were working on Dragon Slayer, an analog movie, obviously. There were no digital effects involved. They had to make it work in real life. Phil Tippett was the guy. I love the term Dragon Supervisor. That's his credit for the film is Dragon Supervisor. But he was the stop motion guy. Anytime you see the stop motion and go motion in the film, that's Phil Tippett. Dennis Muren from ILM was the main guy. I don't know. I just, I'm a big fan of Phil Tippett's work in general. Because he worked on Howard the Duck and all the Robocop movies. You know, The Golden Child? Mm-hmm. He did the Garthok for Coneheads. Oh, the yeah. fucking giant Conehead monster. Narfold <laughs> the Garthok. Willow, obviously, because that was ILM. The way the movie was made, because it was produced by Americans in the UK, the studios insisted the leads had to be American. No, no, they have to be American. We can't have them speaking with British accents. Your leads have to be american so galen and valerian have to be american doesn't really make any sense peter mcnichol and caitlin clark this is their film debut their debut they were, right they were theater actors and sadly caitlin clark died i think she died at like 50 she died of ovarian cancer peter mcnichol apparently is embarrassed by dragon slayer he does not like the movie and he doesn't talk about it yeah i heard he didn't even put he doesn't put it on like his credits which is fucking insane to me i mean look you were the cheesy doctor in ghostbusters 2 but you're not gonna take credit for this this it was good it was your first fucking movie it was a classic and people like dragons there it got great reviews at the time look you do get a glimpse of his dick so it ruined his life no he had a good career <laughs> after this right he's doing fine and that really bums me out because i i, I think dragon slayer is great eric roberts was also considered for galen at some point i can't picture that at all i feel like he was a little too handsome but also too creepy yeah i can't imagine eric roberts playing this character he's too wholesome i don't think eric roberts could ever play wholesome he could I mean, play I'll... it i wouldn't believe it i'd just be waiting for him to you know steal the fucking sacred medallion or whatever they were looking for <laughs> i think there's a reason why he didn't get the role cut is what yeah. i'm saying yeah him and vermithrax would actually seem like they'd probably be friends i don't know they look like cousins i mean <laughs> you guys are related right you look like a reptile i'm not trying to uh smirch the character of eric roberts i i like the man i respect him i appreciate his work i can't see him playing galen galen brad warden i like the name brad warden i'm galen brad warden the baby dragons in the movie ken ralston designed them once again david Bennett, the original artist they kept being told time and time again the dragons can't be cute because if, if these fuckers are cute when galen's cutting off their heads with an enchanted lance you're gonna lose him as a hero no don't kill those adorable baby dragons make them like, which and eventually they did they did i guess i thought they looked like toads they kind of look like a toad and a dachshund in the commentary on the 4k disc guillermo del toro he calls them pugs they look like pugs to him now i can't see it peter mcnichol's just murdering pugs now when i watch the movie he kills those two with a spear and they die quick but his leg he beats it to death with a fucking torch that poor dragon dies hard i find that difficult to watch but i think that's part of the point it's all brutal you're definitely supposed to have a little bit of feels for the dragon because my perspective was more this is literally just they say they made a deal with it but you never see that it only acts like an animal it's not like trying to make deals with anyone it finds its dead kids and it gets pissed off and it fucks shit up and then some people come and try to kill it and do the story of dragon Slayer begins what they call an established peace in this kingdom called Erland. Our king Casiodorus has made a peace with a dragon named Vermithrax Pejorative, which is, what a fucking name. The name actually means the worm of Thrace, which makes things worse. 
tenuous peace. Everything's fine right now. Shit could go down. Everybody was good, but they were kind of definitely looking over their shoulder. And we know there's a dragon. Throw him a virgin every once in a while and it's all good. Nobody do anything fucking crazy, man. The King Cassiodorus, he came up with an idea to appease this dragon that was ransacking the land. It was basically terrorizing his entire kingdom. He came up with a way to appease the beast. Twice each year, at the spring and autumn equinox, the king selects a new victim. Virgins. A lottery. Barbaric. And in return, this dragon, it leaves your villages and crops unburned. Your king's made a pact with a monster. And this is the part that just kills me. I actually think it's very funny. When you see that poor virgin shackled to the post, she's doomed to be destroyed by a fucking dragon. She's crying. She's terrified. Some functionary. And this guy's technically his title is Chamberlain. He's the king's Chamberlain. His name is Horserick. The guy yelling and reading yeah. a scroll. <laughs> Re- reading a prepared statement from a scroll as a declaration in a very authoritarian voice. Now be it known throughout the kingdom. That this maiden, having lawfully been chosen by a deed of fortune and destiny, shall hereby give up her life for the greater good of our land. There's so much uh, ceremony to it. This okay. has to be done. Like, anybody cares. These people are genuinely afraid. If he doesn't go up there and read the terms of their agreement with the dragon, the dragon's gonna, like, find a loophole. Knowing the lore of dragons, I assumed that, but they'd never mention any of that shit. And because the dragon isn't like, we don't know that it's a sentient being. Apparently they say it is, but we never see that. It just makes it even more funny seeing the dragon only act like an animal but knowing that he's out there reading to like a bear in a cave reading a scroll ritualistically to a fucking giant animal in a cave and then running away when hear it stir i mean you cannot argue that for years offering this dragon two virgins a year has kept it at bay it's not doing anything it's just hanging out it eats the virgins and that's it so technically the piece works but that doesn't mean the dragon understands the terms of a contract and obviously the girl she doesn't care about the contract there's even a moment when Horserick reads out from the scroll the king has exempted her family from obligations for a period of five years in gratitude for this sacrifice his majesty declares the family plowman to be free of obligations for a period not to exceed he says that like she cares she's in pure fight or flight panic mode right now he's trying to reassure her that her noble sacrifice will be repaid by her family won't have to pay taxes for five years like that that makes it all better right that'll make the sacrifices better you have this moment of comedy with this jackass reading from a scroll but that's deflated Uh, immediately i thought that was kind of a funny little turn too. the way it was laughing at this fucking idiot and you slowly see all the troops and the people gathering running away while he's still because he hasn't got through the fucking scroll and he's got to read the whole goddamn thing or the fucking deal won't be upheld or whatever. All these other people were out of there, but he was still standing there. But then the second he got out of there, instantly back to drama because this young lady is about to get eaten by a dragon. You don't see the dragon. You do not. See, you see pieces of him. You see a part of his tail. You see his leg. It's very smart. It builds tension. Yeah, especially I mean, all the shit we were talking about that they had to go through just to create it because they did so many different shots of it flying through the air and then it coming out of the cave and then it inside of the cave all of those had to be different versions because they didn't just have a computer that could make it all and when they were shooting that that sequence that first sequence where the dragon kills the virgin originally the pieces like the tail and the and the leg the hydraulics in those pieces 
stopped working. They actually had a choreographed sequence they were going to shoot, but since the hydraulics weren't working, Matthew Robbins, he was basically in panic mode because this is only the second movie he directed. His first big scene, the animatronics aren't working, but he's the director. Everyone's looking to him like, what do we do? So he can't just ask anyone else. Winch up the tail and drop it on the wagon. Just do that. But what if it breaks? It doesn't matter. Just winch up the tail and drop it on the wagon. Let's see what happens. Have the virgin run towards the wagon. The tail drops, cuts off her escape, and she runs back. And so he basically bullshitted his way through that entire sequence because the the animatronics weren't doing what he wanted them to do. Kind of similar to Jaws where the shark wasn't working. And so they cut it out of like three quarters of the scenes they wanted, which makes it so much more suspenseful. You know it's there, but you don't know if it's there. You know it's around but you don't know where he is. Right. It actually works for the film's benefit. A similar feeling with the dragon in this movie where you catch glimpses of it and you see like a wing or teeth and fucking flames come flying. And like you said, it's not until the very end where you actually see the whole dragon posed up. They save the money shots. They save those. Mm -hmm. They save that. That's the smart play. If you saw Vermithrax in all his glory 10 minutes into the movie, the power of that climactic sequence would be completely diminished. But meanwhile, we have a group of travelers been in a long and weary voyage to the land of Kragenmore so they can uh, talk to the local wizard Ulrich. They want this goddamn sorcerer to take care of their dragon. But cantankerous old Hodge tells these poor travelers that Ulrich ain't gonna see nobody. Is this? Oh, yes, this is Kragenmore. And yes, this is the house of Ulrich. And no, he won't see you. But I know you've come a long way. Your business is urgent. It doesn't matter. Please. Please yourself. Go home. But Ulrich, he he has seen a vision in a pool of water. He has seen something that has shaken him to his core, staring off into the distance, completely lost in thought. His apprentice Galen tries to rouse him from his stupor. What is it? We have visitors. I know. I will see them. You will? Yes. There's a great task needing to be done. I have been witness to something. Something of consequence to you. To me? Yes. My own death. And that's Ralph Richardson as uh, Ulrich. Ralph Richardson is a brilliant actor, and he's not phoning this performance in. I just saw myself die in a vision. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't bullshit around. He's like, no, some shit just went down in a vision. I'll I'll talk to these travelers. The beautiful part about Ralph Richardson's performance is uh, as completely eccentric and bizarre, but you also sense his authority. You feel his authority the whole time. He's a a weirdo. But immediately, you also see that he has magic power. One of the first things he does... He's lighting candles and extinguishing candles with his hands. He has power. If you're on his good side, he's kind of goofy and silly, but uh, he's definitely got like a magician's kind of aura. This is what I imagine a lot of the fantasy novel cantankerous old magicians who are nice and powerful. As long as you don't fuck with them, everything is fine. But if you fuck with them, you don't want to fuck with a wizard. You just don't do it. Yeah, just in general, it's not a, like they'll turn you into a pig and laugh at you, send you off into the woods. And you know what? Maybe that'll wear off in an hour, or maybe it will never wear off, and someone will hunt you and eat you for dinner once. <laughs> like, hey, you don't know. You don't know. That's what Beth Morda did in Willow. She turned all those people into pigs. Mm-hmm. And Ulrich agrees to see the travelers. That great scene with with him and Galen, where he's getting ready, and he puts on this cloak and he puts on his dumb serpent hat. Looks. Forbidding enough, don't you think? Oh, yes. Master? No. They'd think me infer. I need to look authoritarian in front of these people. I need to look grand. The beautiful way that they introduce him to the crowd. Galen plays that very pitiful fucking drum roll. 
and then waves that metal sheet to make it sound like thunder. Like, yeah. Oh, the, the grandeur of Ulrich of Tigermore. The next thing that happens, Ulrich just lights a bunch of fucking candles with his magic power. So, I mean, he can right. he actually has power, but he only uses it sparingly. And it, I guess you'd call it small magic. That's what you see for the majority of the movie is small magic. Yeah. The movie very wisely reigns it in. In fantasy novels, that happens a lot. The magicians will use some uh, simple tricks to, to make people believers that they have the power that they do or don't have. You know, sometimes they just know one trick. They're trying to fool someone, but sometimes they are actually a powerful wizard and all they have to do is fucking snap their fingers and light a bunch of candles on and off whenever they feel like it to uh, show people that. And that's really the kind of wizard that Ulrich is. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants to show off. But he still tries to look impressive for the visitors, but even that is kind of half-hearted. When Valerian, who at this point is a woman pretending to be a man because her father, from birth, has disguised her gender because he doesn't want her to be uh, eligible for the lottery. Daughters are chosen, sons are not. That's right, unless you happen to be the daughter of the king. What do you mean? If you're rich enough, your name never goes in. My father is poor. So are a lot of fathers. And so she's lived as a boy her entire life, and everyone just thinks she's a boy. Valerian offers Ulrich a dragon scale. Scales. How did you come by these? I found them at the mouth of the lair. This is the part that a lot of people cite immediately as one of the best scenes movie all it is is ralph richardson saying a handful of lines he knows the dragon immediately just from the scale are you afraid of dragons no in fact if it weren't for sorcerers there wouldn't be any dragons once the skies were dotted with them magnificent horned backs leathern wings soaring in their hot breath wind oh i know this creature of yours vermithrax pejorative look at these scales these ridges when the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain, constant pain. It grows decrepit, crippled, pitiful, spiteful. It's very strong. You just feel it. And he means every word he's saying. This dragon is pathetic and it's pissed off. Right now, this creature's life yeah. is pain. And that makes it angry. That makes it dangerous. You don't want to fuck with the dragon, especially an old, angry dragon. And then he's like, okay, we'll go. Galen's like, no, you can't. You can't survive the journey. I'll... Conquer the highest mountain. I'll say you again. Speak up, boy. Hodge. Uh, if you say so, sir. I guess we call him the heavy Tyrion, the king's man, the warrior who's basically just looking out for what he would call the greater good. Right. If he had to choose his his alignment in Dungeons and Dragons, he's lawful evil, but he would consider yeah. himself lawful neutral, I imagine. And a lot of his choices mostly are probably what's best for most of the people because if a couple people die and entire towns aren't getting burnt to the ground by the dragon then that's probably good but also if you had a chance to kill it maybe you should do that too but he's more worried about yeah he's more worried about following rules and the law and the fucking king he, said so it doesn't matter what i think the king fucking said so he's a pragmatic villain he thinks he's doing bad things for the greater good but the reason why i say he's lawful evil and not lawful neutral is because there are moments when he clearly delights in causing pain yeah that's true he, he does kind of talk a little shit there obviously like rub it in he visits with the people he visits with ulrich he says he doesn't mean him any harm but he needs to suss out this wizard and here we have the mystical presence himself. You best keep your distance and your manners. 
If he's ready to lay a dragon in its grave, he's nothing to fear from me. If you think you can really kill this dragon, I need to see some kind of test. I've no more love for that creature than you lot, nor has the king. But before you stir things up, don't you think it would be a good idea to find out if you've got the right man for the job? Ah, so it's a test you're looking for. We don't do tests. They never do tests. Not many real deeds, either. Oh, conversation with your grandmother's shade in a darkened room, the odd love potion or two, but comes a doubter. Why, then it's the wrong day. The planets are not in line. The entrails are not favorable. We don't do tests. And Ulrich provides. He has Galen fetch a dagger. Galen then gets trapped inside of the castle because Ulrich doesn't want him to bear witness to what's happening. Go ahead. Stab me in the heart. Go on. Don't worry. You can't hurt me. Tyrion hesitates. I don't think he wants to kill him. He says I can't yeah. hurt him. And he's a wizard, so maybe he's onto something. And then he just stabs him in the heart and he dies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the part. I was like, okay, you know, there's going to be some fucking razzle death. Oh shit, nope, nope, he just stabbed, he, he just, uh, he just murdered the wizard. Motherfucker's okay. dead. Fuck. When the window opens in the castle and Galen sees, in his last moment, Ulrich looks at Galen. It's this very touching scene, it's very touching, he's dying. We don't know that he's gonna come back later. Galen doesn't know he's gonna come back later. He just thinks his master's just got murdered by some psychopath. You're not going to die. Oh, but I look forward to it. They burn his body. The crowd disperses. They say, the wizard's dead. Now we're going to go back to Erland empty-handed. The lottery will continue. Well, what do we do now, boy? And the next morning, Hodge is collecting Ulrich's ashes from the pyre. Galen gets chosen by Ulrich's amulet. He's very sullen. His master's dead. Then the amulet starts glowing. Galen sees this as a sign. This means I've been chosen. This means I'm not an apprentice anymore. I'm the master. He, he literally says this to Hodge. Stop it! How do you respect for the master? I have as much respect for the master as anyone, old man. But then again, I'm master now. At that point, he's very arrogant. This is my chance. Yeah. I'm in control now. The amulet chose me. I can kill the dragon. He's so filled with confidence. He even picks on Hodge, which is just, it's just mean. It's just petty. But he's also very childish. I think a lot of people who watch the movie forget is that technically, I mean, yes, Peter McNichol was a full grown man, but his character is incredibly naive stupid kid in a lot of ways 18 or 19 or whatever he was supposed to be in the movie so he's just fucking around with hodge with his magic it's kind of good natured in a way but it's also it's just it's unnecessary and it kind of makes mm -hmm. you and that's one of the things i like about the movie is because right off the bat when you see this this change in personality so it makes you think as a viewer this is your hero just being an unnecessary asshole to an old man it shows that even your hero the ostensible protagonist of your film is far from perfect and nobody's that's, perfect that's one of the interesting things about this movie is it shows the imperfections of the hero later it also kind of humanizes the villain well the dragon when it finds its dead babies or whatever gives you the feels both ways for pretty much everyone showing that no one's perfect the movie does this with just about every character even Tyrion, the bad guy he's he's almost like a reluctant at like like you said he didn't want to ultimately be the villain who starts the quest but he was and he did it yeah. he's doing what he thinks is is best for the kingdom when he kills hodge he doesn't kill hodge out of spite he kills hodge because he's trying to stop him from reaching early because he doesn't want this wizard's 
henchman stirring shit up and potentially causing a disaster. He doesn't right. want this to happen. So he's tr- he thinks he's the good guy once again. He's definitely the villain because he kills the fucking helpless old man that's sitting out in the woods by himself. Well, the was that in, when they were in the swimming swimming and he they were the in the gen- pond, yeah. The gender reveal. Galen uh, discovers that uh, Valerian is a woman by diving into this pond that uh, she's bathing in. How's the water? It's cold. I prefer to swim alone if you don't mind. And did you know that pond wasn't real? They made that pond. Yeah. That's really neat. It looked real to me. I just assume. And then you're like, oh, yeah, by the way, that was completely fake. I could tell when the underwater scene, the, the but the top part looked like a, a pretty cool, cool little rocky grotto kind of area. But after she leaves the pond and Galen is just kind of hanging around, you get this great establishing shot where a dragonfly just zips into the frame and then darts out. Obviously, that was unplanned. That was just something that happened when the camera was rolling. Matthew Robbins saw that going through the dailies and just said, we have to use this take. We have to. It wasn't his favorite take because he liked uh, something that Peter McNichol did in like the third take a little better but he was like no we have to use this take because there's a goddamn dragonfly here and that's like a miracle it just makes it feel real how could you orchestrate that you have a dragonfly wrangler no they're gonna do whatever the fuck they want to do because most people that you just watch the scene you're like oh a dragonfly okay having seen so many movies nowadays that have computer animation something like that or like a little bird that flies by especially in an older movie i don't necessarily give it the attention like oh yeah there was no fucking hummingbird wrangler that hummingbird just flew over to the fucking flower because the world is existing regardless of the camera it's a happy accident well that's cool claw that's no claw by the gods it's a tooth you want me to do battle with that who else can we turn to? Did you, did you try the Meridid sisters? What about Rimbard? I, I heard tell he killed a dragon once. They're all dead. You're the only one left. But of course, this is the moment when uh, Galen has his own vision when he gazes into the pond and he sees Tyrion with a bow and arrow. Look, sir, isn't that the old... Yes, the old retainer from Crag and Moor. Now, what's he doing? Filling for his chief, I reckon. Bring me my bow. He catches up with Hodge on the road when he's walking away. Hodge! Uh, uh, Galen! Uh, can you hear me? I hear you. You know, somebody shot me. There's this one simple thing in this scene which really breaks my heart every time he's telling Galen take the ashes burning water Hodge is holding Ulrich's ashes in a leather pouch he tells Galen to to take the pouch out of his hand and he apologizes because he can't open his hand I'm sorry you'll have to peel it loose Uh, burning water what? find the lake throw it in burning water Hodge, don't die. Because he's dying. His hand is locked up. He can't open it. And he actually apologizes to Galen because he can't open his hand. That's the simple little thing. It's like this perfect little human moment right there. The first time I saw this movie, when I was like seven years old, that moment stuck with me because this poor old man can't open his hand. Even in his death, he's apologizing because his fucking body's already feeling as he's dying galen is genuinely distraught when hodge dies maybe it's not just sadness like a general sadness but he also feels bad because 10 minutes ago he was tormenting the poor old man i immediately regret being an asshole because all he was doing was looking up for me and that's part of growing up really what dragon slayer is is a coming of age story i know people don't want to hear that because it's a story about fighting dragons but no this is a coming of age story it's like a stealth growing up movie Uh, there's a long way to earn 
Galen catches up with the travelers. He's strutting around, he's full of bravado. My lord Ulrich is no longer. All that you asked of him, you may now expect of me. The dangers he would face, I will now conquer. The task he would undertake, I will now fulfill. I'm Galen Brad Warden, inheritor of Ulrich's craft and knowledge. And I am the sorcerer you seek. Instead of going to Swanscombe, which is the name of the village they're from, he tells them to take him right to the dragon's lair. He does a little investigating. Yeah. Acts really, he's feeling his Cheerios, I guess is what they would say. There's no question whether this dragon is real or not at this point. So just running up there, knowing that there is a real dragon in this area, just in general, a bad, a fucking stupid childish move. We know a dragon's real. Galen doesn't know it's real. And Galen needs to know if it's actually at home. And when he confirms for himself, he decides now's the time. I'm going to demonstrate my prowess as a sorcerer. And I'm going to bring down a few rocks to block what he's called the sole entrance to the dragon's lair. He thinks he's going to do something really cool, and he thinks he did it. A few big rocks come down. Yay, we did it. Turns out the spell was a little too powerful for him, and he brings down the entire fucking cliff face, down on their heads, and almost kills everybody. He could have killed half a dozen people there, including himself. Because there was a trench that a bunch of people dove in in the background. <laughs> That's the only reason they survived. Yeah, the only reason they survived. Pure luck. But then you're thinking, okay, he brought down a cliff on this cave. That dragon ain't getting out of there. We're free. And once again, it's another one of those brilliant touches of the movie. They're at Swanscombe, the village. Everyone's celebrating because Galen the Sorcerer has trapped the dragon. Everything's fine now. And this is a big celebration. Because this is a movie that deals with small people living small lives, the celebration is subdued. Musicians? You don't have a giant feast because they don't have the resources for a giant feast. Everyone's making do with what they have. You don't have a whole bunch of musicians playing. You got like four people playing a few instruments. People are happy. They're excited. They're drinking. They're having a good time. It's not debauched. They're not having an amazing party. They're not that kind of people. Then Tyrion shows up and says, hey, you know what? I, if it were up to me, I'd fucking kill you too. The king would meet our newfound benefactor and offer his gratitude to the one man who has succeeded where so many have failed. What sort of gratitude? A knife in the belly? Arrow in the chest? I would as soon dispatch you as I did the rest. But his majesty would have a cozy little chat and commands otherwise. And this is where we get that great moment. Well, first off, when the scene starts, Galen's demonstrating some of his magic, trying to impress the king, who does not give a fuck. How many of you have ever seen a table fly? None of you! Hughes? Mensa? Surge! Surge Mensa! Sorry, sorry, sorry. Ah, I do. I really can do this. It's not necessary. Whatever, motherfucker. This doesn't matter to me. Floating table. Fantastic. What else you Wow. Got? And then the king tells him that great story. Did you ever hear of King Gazerick? He was my brother. When he ascended the throne, the dragon was unbridled. So he brought forth his broadsword and his spear, assembled his best company of fighters, and went out to do battle. He was never seen again. But his attack provoked the most terrible reprisals. Whole villages incinerated. Entire crops burnt. Have you ever considered the consequences of failure? What failure? Children were dying. Only a few. Does that sound cruel? It is better that they should die than others might live. This guy was a little more pragmatic and, let's be honest, a lot more cowardly and decided, we're going to try a different tactic. Instead of trying to kill this dragon, which I'm thinking it's impossible, what we're going to do 
is try to make peace with it. And so he started the lottery, sacrificing poor, unsuspecting women twice a year to this monster. This is a dragon. You can't imagine he actually had a conversation with a dragon. They hashed out the details of a contract. The dragon signed it in blood or whatever. That didn't happen. It just worked. And from the moment it began, the dragon was tamed. The kingdom has prospered. This is when Galen says that line that honestly should be much more quoted than it ever has been because it has so many more uses. At what price? You can't make a shameful peace with dragons. I think it's a brilliant line, not just because of the context in which it's used in the movie, but you can use it now in any number of contexts. With like, I don't know, I'm going to get political, but you can't make a shameful peace with dragons. The king says, you know, fuck you, I'm putting you in a dungeon. Princess Elspeth, who is apparently, you know, she fell pretty far from the tree, will say. Galen tells her what he knows. It's better for everyone this way. A king must protect his people. Just as he protects his daughter. Are you referring to the lottery? I have participated in every choosing since I came of age. You don't have to pretend. Not to me, not down here. The families with money, royal connections. You've participated in a lie, you know it. It doesn't take much convincing on her part. She's like, no, that's probably true. I kind of like that part because at first she's like, no, that's fucking silly. I'm in the lottery. My dad my dad told me <sighs> right. I was. You can see the gears taking like, oh, not realizing that the fucking poor people from town, their children were the ones who were getting hauled off and fucking fed to a dragon. That gives her character a lot of weight, that little realization. They told me, oh, fuck. They told me that. You think they're going to put my fucking name in there? No. Oh, that makes sense no one would put my name in there because daddy would fucking kill them <laughs> yeah she immediately runs off to confront her father and the scene went right before this before galen was tossed into the dungeon the king took his amulet in that scene the king presented himself as very authoritarian very proud i'm doing my best for my people and then the next time you see him when elspeth goes to confront him he and horserick are standing around a pile of lead bars trying to use ulrich's amulet to transmute them into gold. I, Cassiodorus Rex, Father, hereby. did you know that some families have paid bribes to stay out of the lottery? Nonsense. By the power of this amulet, justly wielded by my hand in accordance with the laws of Erland, now led, be thou gold. <laughs> I'm burnt. I forgot that it immediately goes to him trying to make money. The second he got some sort of magical artifact that he knows nothing about, but he knows it's got a little magic in it. Hey, hey, turn this pile of shit into gold. Go. It's great. It doesn't work and he gets pissed. Going going hard on the, the shitty, greedy king right here. But that's just who he is. Elspeth lets Galen out of the dungeon because she knows the truth now. And unfortunately, Vermithrax comes back, causes a massive earthquake as she escapes her tomb. Galen escapes with the aid of a horse that just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Magic horse. We don't have earthquakes in early. This motherfucker dragon. This is not normal. At this point, unfortunately, as Galen escapes, uh, Valerian has revealed herself as a woman. I don't blame you. I was careless. I, I, I knew the moment I saw you. I've known the whole time. You never knew a thing. This is the, the great scene where the people gather around Brother Jacobus? Wait, wait, Jacobius. Jaco uh, it's, it's, it's something fucking ridiculous like that. I just saw it. I think it's Jacobus or Jack. I don't know how it's pronounced because I don't remember how they said his name. Listen to me, my brethren. The moment of our fear is the hour of our triumph. 
This is a sign from God. Brother but Jacopus. Played by uh, future Emperor Palpatine, Ian McDiarmid. Yeah, I was like, man, I know that fucking grin from somewhere. Oh, God, it's Palpatine. That's that's why. He's uh, standing around the dragon's lair with a whole bunch of people. This is a pre-Christian era. Brother Jacopus is a missionary, and this is how he's doing it. This is clearly not, not a dragon. This is the devil. He's fallen from heaven, and now he's trying to rise up out of hell. This is that first reveal of Vermithrax rising up from that fissure, and he looks like he's coming out of hell. Because you see the fire below, and this dragon just rises up. This beautiful shot. You see it from behind, and as she rises up, she obscures Brother Jacobus, who's in the in the background, and he's yelling at him. Unclean beast! Get thee down! Be thou consumed by the fire that made it! lays waste to this 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 poor bastard you'd think because all these people stood there and watched this man of god get completely fucked by a dragon you'd think in a normal circumstance that these people would see that and say well i guess his god isn't real this is bullshit but no that's not what happens instead these people see that as an example and they see him basically lay down his life this brave man even though he's not a brave man but they see the the supposed bravery of brother jacobus grail who is a character who joined valerian on her journey to Kragenmore. i left my farm and for what all because someone said find a magician an all-powerful necromancer was the primary person to watch this happen. Next time you see him, he's carrying Brother Jacobus's uh, cruciform staff. He's baptizing people, including uh, Valerian's father. This just created more Christians. These people are following his example now. This guy said he, he tried to get God to smite Vermithrax, and instead Vermithrax smote him. And now you think he's on the level? You who know so much, answer me that. Yeah. Did you see how brave he was when he got roasted? Man, his God must be real. You motherfuckers just watched a wizard drop a mountain on a dragon and that doesn't room in jail and this guy who's got turned into a fucking crispy critter no this guy's the real deal isn't it strange at the very moment that the beast was put down there should be a holy man in the village valerian's father reveals the uh the dragon slayer lance it's fucking badass man blacksmith have you ever forged a weapon this is sicarius draconum dragon slayer the best i ever made beautiful but i never had the nerve to use it galen has the amulet back that lance itself isn't going to do it it's not going to do the job and so he uses the amulet to enchant the lance to make it hotter than any normal fire could make it good and hot that's not the kind of fire we need air potestatem hermeticam ex flamis ferum sanguinarium Oh, he got the amulet. He's got the staff. He's ready. I guess technically the lottery happens first. He gets the, the amulet oh, back yeah. from the king. And we have, once again, we have that motherfucker horse rig reading from a scroll. Now, my countrymen, hear me. Behold, for I am chosen. I shall die that many may live. I shall lay down my life for family and fellows. I shall go to my grave 
for the love of our king and his wise policy. She's gonna fucking yell about this shit. Uh, and this is gonna read scrolls those... and yell. He's gonna read scrolls at you. That's his job. <laughs> he reads scrolls at you. But this is another one of those moments that Guillermo del Toro called it well-orchestrated bullshit. The lottery sequence is just well-orchestrated bullshit. But then this is the part where Princess Elspeth reveals herself to be an actual fucking hero, unlike her father, because she rigs the lottery so that every tile in the bag has her name on it. She gives a very impassioned speech to the people about this, and you see the people listening. It is true that my name appears on all the lots. This does not invalidate the lottery. It certifies it. It redresses an injustice. She gives a damn about us. Somebody actually cares about us, and she's the one who's going to go die. And the king can't take this. And so he talks to Galen. Galen comes back. I'll give you your amulet back if you go save my daughter. And he has this great line. I've always had the greatest admiration for the black arts, you chaps with your mysterious spells. Right before he does this, he talks to Tyrion, tries to get Tyrion to save his daughter. Tyrion, surely you'll do something out of loyalty to the kingdom. But that's just it, your majesty. My first duty is loyalty to the kingdom. So he's, he's principal. No one's above the law, not even you. Or your daughter. He's supposed to pull a name out of the fucking hat. He pulled a name out of the hat. It was your daughter's. Sucks that she cheated, but he pulled the fucking name out. He read it. This is where everything starts happening. Galen tries to save Elspeth, who doesn't want to be saved, mind you. No, go away. Let me die, basically. Just let me die. Tyrion shows up to try to stop Galen from saving Elspeth. When Galen actually cuts her shackles and tells her to run, she runs into the dragon's lair. She's like, no, this is what I gotta do. I gotta go die. this whole sequence Galen is completely outmatched by Tyrion he's surviving by luck and then when Tyrion when he's fighting him with the the dragon slayer spear yeah you can see the whole time Tyrion is just basically fucking with him you failed my friend I thank the gods for it obviously yeah Galen had trained in the magical arts not the sword fighting arts looks to be several inches shorter and has a much longer taller weapon which is harder to wield the other guy with the sword is pretty much dancing circles around him not real concerned that lack of concern is his undoing because he's leaning against that sacrificial post two seconds I'm gonna come over there and cut off your fucking head he doesn't think that a spear can puncture the post and then run him through. Galen doesn't have the strength to do that. He doesn't understand the spear is enchanted. And so when Galen rushes forward with the spearhead, it punches through the post like it's not there. He dies without even realizing what the fuck just happened. Fuck you. You deserve it. Valerian, in the meantime, she collected a bunch of Vermithrax's scales and made uh, Galen this very Which... cool-looking shield. It's a shield. I made it. Might keep the fire off. You might not. Which I immediately love being a fantasy and game and book fan. I was like, oh, Dragon Scale Shield, that's some top-notch equipment there. You need Absolutely. that shit to you need that shit to beat the boss for sure. Absolutely. Required equipment to beat the boss right there. She gives him the shield. In this sequence, she believes Galen's in love with the princess, and that's why he's gonna go save her. You know, you're an idiot. You're going to die tonight. You'll be ripped limb from limb. This is the last time I'll ever speak to you. Thank you. And then he admits to her that, no, I'm not in love with the princess. I'm in love with you. It's a touching little romantic moment. It feels genuine. The characters have great chemistry. The actors have great chemistry. And it's very chaste. It's like a very romantic fantasy scene. And it's very well done. You're in love, aren't you? Yes. It's all right. I understand. She's very beautiful. Very brave. Who is? What do you mean? Your princess. I am in love. 
but not with the princess. Okay, well, I got a reason to live now. I'm going to get laid when I kill this dragon. He goes right in the lair, finds poor Elspeth dead, being consumed by Vermithrax's children, her creepy little toad children. Which are like the size of a very, very large dog. The thing I remembered about them was the way their heads were very wide, like a uh, viper snake. Big heads. They're, they're big, kind of almost diamond-like, which is good for chomping. Galen kills, he dispatches the first two with the spear very easily. The third one ambushes him. He's dropped the spear and has to resort to beating this dragon, this baby dragon, to death with a torch. It's like a fucking gangland hit. This poor thing, it, it, it takes its time dying. There was some emotion behind that beating. The well-realized sequence when Galen ventures into the Lake of Fire to do battle with Vermithrax pejorative. It's just the whole sequence is beautiful. Everything, when the dragon rears up and breathes fire. First time I watched this movie, I could feel heat when I saw this. Like, you know, sometimes when you're at a concert, you feel the, rush. the pyro comes up and you can feel the heat on your face. First time I saw this movie, I was so into it. First time she breathed fire. Oh, fuck. I started to feel like I was going to start sweating. Galen, to his credit, does pretty well. He lands some pretty solid blows with the spear, but it's not enough. There's a great moment. It's actually the moment when the spear breaks. The head of the spear is stuck in Vermithrax's neck. She uses the talons on her wing. The bat wing has its little fingers. Mm-hmm. She uses her fingers to try to grab the spearhead, the spear remnant, and pull it out of her neck. You can see the desperation, the frantic kind of desperation in the movement, trying to pull this thing out of her neck. It really sells that Vermithrax is a real creature. She's in a lot of pain, and she's trying to get this goddamn thing out of her neck. And that's stop motion, and it's Phil Tippett, and it's beautiful work. <laughs> Galen gets fucked up. He's knocked out. When he wakes up, it's like a miracle to him. He can't believe the fact that he's still alive. And he knows he's failed. Vermithrax is still alive. The spearhead's lost. He knows he doesn't have the, the magical power to kill this dragon. And so he gives up. Valerian's father says, you two just leave. I don't want my daughter to wind up in the lottery again. What kind of life could you have here? You know what I think? Magic. Magicians. It's all fading from the world. Dying out. That makes me happy. That means the dragon will be dying too. It's not very heroic, but at this point, Galen realizes he's not a hero. Only then does he finally realize, when he sees the reflection of sunlight in water, what Hodge was telling him. Honey, water! We gotta go back to the dragon's lair. And that's when we get the miraculous resurrection of Ulrich of Crag and Moor. The burning water. Lake of fire. You had a plan! From the beginning! He knew this was going to happen! He couldn't walk. He knew he couldn't make the journey, so he had us make it for him. You get to the resurrection of Ori, this big, grandiose moment. Galen can't believe his eyes. You're back. I thank the powers that made me. I like the first thing that Ulrich says. Glad to see you, too. You didn't bring along anything to eat, by any chance? Have a snack, do you? He comes back, he's all dressed in white. That's not a coincidence. 
He's Gandalf. To his credit, Gandalf did not decide to transform himself into a human bomb. But yeah, no, uh, Ulrich does have those parallels to Gandalf because he's very gray at first. Then he comes back, he's all dressed in white, the climax. And no, yeah, yeah, I get it. It's Gandalf. I'm not stupid. But this is the part everything has been building toward. Everything else has been small magic, little bits here and there. He brought down a cliff. That was pretty cool. But even in the context of the film, that was a big deal, but it's still small magic. Yeah, but you didn't kill the dragon, so it didn't matter that much. Ulrich ascends to a mountaintop and he starts controlling the very elements of nature he's bringing up a storm he's summoning clouds the winds are wailing it's primal what he's doing this is a demonstration of true magic the smallest hint the smallest glimpse of the world that was because this is the end of the age of magic but what was it like when the world was full of wizards when they all had access to this kind of power it's a world that was probably beautiful wonderful and also terrible to behold this gives you this glimpse of that but we have this great sequence when Ulrich is dueling with Vermithrax he's summoning the storm to attack this dragon that beautiful moment he's causing like lightning to strike there's great power on display here real power And he tells Galen that there's a plan. There's something you must do. Anything. I want you to destroy the amulet. And me, along with it. You brought me from the flame. You must send me back. You'll know the time. After this big display of power, the wounded Vermithrax does manage to grab Ulrich, who is waiting for it at this point. He holds his arms out. He's like, come and take me, because he knows this is the only way it ever could be. He's seen how it happens. Galen destroys the amulet. Ulrich blows up, taking Vermithrax with him, the two last vestiges of the Age of Magic. They plummet from the sky like a shooting star. That's an appropriate exit for both of them. The Age of Magic sort of ends when humans take their foothold in the fucking world and and that's when everything gets goes to shit and magic fucking dies the both of them dying kind of felt like that that is the end of the age of magic the next scene the christians are gathered around the corpse of vermithrax let us pray we thank thee lord for this divine deliverance they're giving credit to god for slaying the dragon and then the king shows up in his carriage and they have this great close-up of his feet when he exits the carriage. And he's wearing these dainty little slippers, these gold-laced dainty little slippers. This is your dragon slayer. He walks out up to the dragon holding his big stupid ceremonial sword. The king, Casiodorus, holds the tip of the blade against the dragon's exposed throat. And here Horse Rick is, once again, reciting dumbass words from a scroll. All hail Casiodorus Rex! Dragon Slayer! <laughs> King Cassiodorus is the Dragon Slayer. And the Christians don't say a damn thing about it because the Christians are like, okay, whatever. By the grace of God, Cassiodorus slew the dragon. Ulrich and Galen and Valerian don't get a lick of credit for this. It's stolen valor is what it is. And you can also see this as the beginning of the myth of St. George and the Dragon. Matthew Robbins claims this takes place in the 6th century and the story of St. George and the Dragon goes back to, I think, the 11th century. So you can see several hundred years of a story being told again and again. And you can see King Cassiodorus, whose daughter was 
slain by a dragon, killing the dragon as retaliation. You can see that becoming the story of a brave Christian knight who saves a princess from a dragon. I just think that's very smart and it's very clever because these guys, uh, Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood, were inspired by St. George and the Dragon. And what they did here was basically tell the origin story of St. George and the Dragon. Reverse engineer it a little bit. And that's very cool. But of course, the movie ends with uh, Galen and Valerian just wandering off. They're done. They don't want to be part of this this dog and pony show anymore. They love each other. Galen's still a little sad because his master's dead, but also because the amulet's gone. And then he wishes... You may not be a sorcerer, Galen Bradwarden, but that doesn't matter. Not to me. I know. I just wish. What? We had a horse. And then a horse just shows up as if by magic? Another magical horse, yeah. Galen laughs because he sees it. It could imply a lot of things. It could imply that Galen still has some kind of magic power, or that it was just maybe Ulrich's last gift, or it could just be a coincidence. Dragon Slayer had a comic book adaptation that I read when I was a kid. Didn't they have like a Marvel comic Yeah, version? it was Marvel. Three formats. A two-issue comic book adaptation. A one-issue called the Marvel Super Special number 20, which collected both issues into one in a larger format. It was also published in a digest format. This is the one I read, like a little paperback book. That's the one I read because I found it at a yard sale for 50 cents. Right. In the last bit, when the, the horse shows up, instead of the way it plays out in the movie, there's this one last little cynical bit of dialogue from Galen was that magic do you think and he says no it was a coincidence better to believe that than magic right it puts yeah, this th- little period at the end of the sentence like it's that like, is no. kind of yeah the end of magic no there's no magic anymore it just it's coincidence like even Galen has given up at this point which I, I'm glad they cut that out I, I don't even know if that was ever the script and they just added it for the comic book but I'm glad that wasn't in the movie and it just ended the way it did <laughs> But yeah, that's Dragon Slayer. 1981's Dragon Slayer, starring Peter McNichol and his one and only role as an action hero. Pretty much. He never played the hero again. That just never happened. I imagine Peter McNichol in like Rambo or some shit. It ain't yeah. gonna happen, Kai. Plays a lot of doctors and lawyers. <laughs> Things like, not a lot of superheroes, action heroes. Yeah. Didn't do a lot of swashbuckling. Dallas Sheriff wore this before he died. You know, I actually saw him change lead into gold. I could never do that. Too bad. You'd have stood to inherit some real wealth. Since we're we're wrapping this up, let's talk a little bit about what happened next. First off, in post-production, there's this wonderful moment. Walter Murch, friend of Matthew Robbins, Matthew Robbins called him and asked him for a favor. He needed somebody to finish the sound mix for Dragon Slayer. There's nobody better than Walter Murch. And so I said, hey buddy, would you come in here and, and save this movie for me in sound? He showed up Spent a day working on the movie, and apparently it was a miracle. He, he worked a miracle in the sound booth and made something amazing. This is but Matthew Robbins' own words. He was like, no, this, this guy did something here. It was fucking nuts. One of the problems was that, if anything, it was overdone. There was too much of everything. The first day of mixing, we couldn't seem to find the focus. I reached out and said, I need a favor. You've got to get over here. He did, and in a matter of hours, he found the core. It's a wonderful job that he did. And his official credit on the film is sound re-recordist. 
and the film was nominated for uh, best original score. I'm just gonna say it was nominated for two Oscars for best. Was it special effects? It was nominated for best original score, but it lost to Chariots of Fire. Funny enough, the score was by Alex North. A lot of the music you hear in Dragon Slayer was actually repurposed from his unreleased soundtrack to 2001: A Space Odyssey. He scored the whole movie, then Kubrick heard it and said, uh, "No, I don't want this." It also was nominated for uh, special effects, and uh, it lost to Raiders of the Lost Ark which was the only other film nominated and another ILM production. So ILM won either way, but Dragon Slayer lost. Just trying to think of what, what cool special effects were in that one. It's a little more subtle than what happens in Dragon Slayer, but there are plenty of special effects in Raiders. Dragon Slayer should have won. If it yeah, that, award, that's what I was getting that. at. was like, whatever it was, what was better than the cool-ass dragon? Matthew Robbins was friends with Spielberg and Lucas. George Lucas sat in on a preview screening and was blown away. He loved the movie. He told Matthew Robbins, this movie's going to be a huge hit. Paramount decided in their infinite wisdom to release Raiders of the Lost Ark two weeks after they released Dragon Slayer and Dragon Slayer was absolutely buried in the box office by a film produced by George Lucas and directed by Steven Spielberg, two of Matthew Robbins' contemporaries and his friends, who he'd collaborated with on previous films. And at that time, the only revenue was box office. So you wanted to fucking be running hot to really get to really get your funds up. They say it made 18, it took eight, cost 18 it cost million 18. to make. Yeah, it cost 18 million, made 14. So that is a failure by any measure. Go on then, get yourself burned alive. What a fine trick that will be. It's a real shame because this movie deserved a lot more than it got. And Matthew Robbins was incredibly dejected by the performance of Dragon Slayer. It basically broke his heart. It hurt him too much to really think about. He hated the home video version because he thought, you know, pan and skin VHS, it looked like absolute garbage. And he's like, this is how it's going to be remembered. People aren't going to see it in theaters. They're going to watch it on video. They're going to watch it on TV. It's going to look like shit. No one's going to care about this movie. He moved on with his life. And he did his own thing. He had a good career. He made some decent movies. He made Bingo, which is weird. I didn't even realize that. Bingo, the movie about the fucking the dog, the circus dog. About the dog? He directed Batteries Not Included. Oh, shit. A Steven Spielberg production. That was one of the first movies I ever remember. Steven Spielberg production? Wait, what does that mean? He had a really big career making commercials. Big commercial director. He ended up becoming very good friends with Guillermo del Toro. In the early 1990s, he went to Guadalajara. He says it was a Sundance Institute that sent him and other filmmakers down to Guadalajara to talk with prospective or emerging Mexican filmmakers. He was basically assigned to talk to this guy named Guillermo del Toro that he never heard of. And as soon as Guillermo del Toro realized who this guy was, he's like, wait a minute, you directed Dragon Slayer? Del Toro spent the, the entire time together just talking about Dragon Slayer and how amazed he was by Dragon Slayer. These two became very close friends and they've ended up collaborating multiple times. They co-wrote the screenplay for Mimic 97. They co-wrote 2015's Crimson Peak. They co-wrote the remake of Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. And Matthew Robbins co-wrote the first draft of the screenplay for uh, the recent Pinocchio, the Oscar-winning Pinocchio. They're still incredibly good friends. And this is what uh, Matthew Robbins says, this one little uh, phrase about Guillermo del Toro. He says, Guillermo's got a wonderfully unhealthy obsession with insects. Yeah, okay, I can see it. But yeah, Robbins, he did a whole bunch of good stuff. And uh, he's still working. He's writing screenplays for Bollywood films. I didn't that's expect funny. to read that. I bet that's fucking easy money. Hal Barwood, he worked on a few more movies, directed a movie, then got out of the business, moved on to LucasArts, started making games for LucasArts. That was his second career. He retired, I think, in the early 2000s from LucasArts, and now he just lives in Oregon 
he's happy. He's he's doing his own thing. All you think about is your tricks and your neighbor. The, the big one for me was always Phil Tippett because this guy, he was always a legend in my head. I didn't know the name Phil Tippett when I saw Dragon Slayer, but I learned the name Phil Tippett because of Dragon Slayer. And he spent the 80s working with ILM and then moving on with uh, his own studio. He was hired by Spielberg. Tippett Studio was hired by Spielberg to uh, originally to bring the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park to life with his go motion animation technique. And then some upstarts at ILM pitched the idea of CG dinosaurs, which is something no one thought that could happen. Even guys at ILM were like, we can't do that. Dennis Murin, who was the head honcho at ILM, he stuck up for Phil Tippett and said, no, you kids won't be able to make something as good as what Tippett's doing. But Spielberg was intrigued, asked for a few tests. He got the tests and was so thrilled. Like, no, this is, they have to be CG. And Phil Tippett saw the same tests and realized he was out of a job. Wasn't there only a handful of them that they made, like the... Uh... Most of what you see on screen in Jurassic Park, it's mostly Stan Winston's uh, animatronics. There's right. not a lot of CG in the movie. The CG parts are when you see, like, the herds of yeah. all of them. Or the flock. raptors, a lot of the raptors. Yeah. They use the CG sparingly, which is a good thing. Behold! Eggs fit for a king. After Phil Tippett saw those tests and he knew he was fucked, watching those tests made him physically ill. And so he left and basically disappeared for about two weeks because he was trying to get his head back together because he realized these techniques that he'd been pioneering for almost 20 years were obsolete. Right. He's out of a job now. Not just for Jurassic Park, but just in general. So what the fuck is he supposed to do now? He remained on the film Jurassic Park, and he, uh, his technical title was Dinosaur Supervisor. Mostly what he did was he helped the ILM animators make walking cycles for the dinosaurs look more realistic. He got the movement down for them. After that, he made the smart decision and pivoted to CG. He took Tippett Studio digital. Like, if you watch Starship Troopers, that's Tippett Studio. Mm. He even directed the first sequel, Hero of the Federation. He actually directed that movie. But yeah, he did stuff like uh, The Haunting. He did some of the Twilight movies. And weirdly enough, he brought another dragon to life in 1998's Dragonheart. Oh, Dragonheart, yeah. He was the creature designer for Dragonheart. So yeah, that was him. ILM animated the dragon. He was working for ILM one more time. It was kind of neat for him to go full circle like that, but he actually has been working for Lucasfilm. He's been commissioned a few times from, from Lucasfilm as they've been owned by Disney. In The Force Awakens and in Solo, you see that hollow chest board from the first Star with the little stop motion creatures on it. Right. Tippett Studio brought them to life for those movies. And they actually have actual stop motion characters in an episode of The Mandalorian. They use stop motion instead of CG. A brief shot in an episode of The Mandalorian. So it's not dead yet. He's that's still cool. using the stuff. Yeah, and, and that's a neat thing that they have called him and his, and his team in to do. It also brings to mind... Uh, Ray Harryhausen visited the set yeah. of Dragon Slayer. That's a really cool thing. He visited the set and visited the stop motion team, Phil Tippett and his crew. And he's going to say there's a handful of special effects wizards who were around at the time that weren't involved in this. Then you throw one more of them who visited the set. Yeah. He saw some of the uh, effects in motion. He was absolutely blown away by what he was seeing. Because this is a guy, the ILM team, they were inspired by him to get in the business and it's a wonderful kind of uh, symmetry because Ray Harryhausen was inspired by Willis O'Brien who brought dinosaurs to life in 1925's Lost World he brought King Kong to life that's what got Ray Harryhausen excited and inspired to make movies his first professional work was with Willis O'Brien on Mighty Joe Young so he learned from his hero the techniques of stop motion in 1981 Harryhausen was wrapping up Clash of the Titans which he had envisioned as his own swan song his retirement 
retirement from the business. That was it. Well, his career was ending. He was watching these new upstarts making magic with this new stop motion technique. So he thought, I'm leaving this stuff in good hands. And then Phil Tippett sees the writing on the wall in Jurassic Park, realizes that stop motion is essentially dead and has to abandon this lifelong dream. And he pivots to digital, but he's still keeping his dream alive because he's still using stop motion because he just finally released Mad God, a film that he's been making since the late 80s. He finally finished it and released it in 2021. And that's all stop motion. And it's insane. And it's a beautiful culmination of a lifetime of work. Honestly, at some point, we'll probably be talking about it on Travel, the show that talks about stuff on purpose. We can slay this dragon with song and prayer. If we but join together in faith, we shall live. And the Shall die. But yeah, that's Dragon Slayer. It's a, I think it's a brilliant movie. I don't say it lightly, but yeah, Dragon Slayer is one of my favorite movies. It has been since the first time I saw it. I think it's amazing. And I just, I like the idea that I get to talk about it. We're done talking about Dragon Slayer. There's only really one thing left to say. Kai, I got asked the question. What question? If you make the wrong answer, I'm going to fucking kill you. Does 1981's Dragon Slayer belong in the Trapo Essentials canon? I... I think Dragon Slayer's definitely in the Trapo Essentials canon. I wish I had a bell to ring right now. <laughs> I'll put ding, that in ding, later. Ding, ding, ding. We'll do it in post. Ding, ding, we'll we'll ding, fix ding. it in post. It's in the canon. It's in the fucking canon. I, I, this is one of those things like, I'm not leaving it up for a boat. I will throw pocket sand in your eyes and distract you and then turn both keys. I will kick you in the dick and slip past you to get Dragon Slayer into the canon. It is the happiest of the holiest. Actually, you know what? It's Easter Sunday. Vermithrax has risen again. <laughs> it's just Vermithrax is the risen one. But yes, that's it. Vermithrax has risen. Dragon Slayer is in the canon. Where is your god now? And uh, all that's left to say, dear listeners, since we've been talking far too long about this, thanks for watching. And uh, run TV, run the TV box. No, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> we would like you to join the conversation. There's a conversation going on right now. It's not a lively conversation, I'll tell you that, but it is it's a conversation. It is a conversation on the old Trepo blog, treposhow.blogspot.com, T R A P P O show blogspot.com go there find the post of your choosing leave a comment you can talk about the subject in the post or you can just say whatever the hell you want we don't care it doesn't matter none of this matters it don't matter none of this matters tell us a recipe or whatever the fuck you feel like doing we just want to hear from you don't tell us you don't like dragon sarah or i'll fucking kill you too <laughs> keep that to yourself and if you do have a long-winded message, weird tirade, or grandma's secret recipe, you can always email us, traposhow at gmail.com, T-R-A-P-P-O show at gmail.com. Let us know something, anything, whatever you got. But yeah, that's it. We're, we're done. Thank you so much for listening, or for not listening, because you're never going to listen to this episode. But we got to tell them to, to get the fuck off. You know, We got to tell them that. We, I mean, at this point, it's basically like the law. The trap of law, we have to say it. Get the fuck off the internet.
Coming up next week on Dr. Butcher's uh, fucking show. <laughs> Dr. Butcher's <laughs> fucking show. <laughs> I forgot. I'm going to use that. Coming up next on Dr. Butcher's.